Spring Hill Jack is a mysterious entity that has been described as both mischievous and murderous. Sightings of him have been reported all over the United Kingdom and Scotland, and his description is as random as his appearances. But some constant aspects persist, like that of his horrifying aspect, taloned hands, and the uncanny ability to breathe blue fire. But this was not always the case. Springhill Jack and the strange stories of him and other encounters that led to his rise in fame. This episode would not have been possible if it were not for all the research that was undertaken by Mike Dash and his paper Springhill Jack to Victorian Bugaboo from Suburban Ghost. Hello and welcome to the second episode of As Yet Unexplained. If you like what you hear, please consider liking, subscribing, or even writing a review on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. As always, we like to remind the listener that within this podcast are unsettling descriptions, and you should be cautious if you find such things distressing. Also, with every story there are victims, so please spare a thought for those who have suffered. The Hammersmith Ghost Before we delve into the tale of Springhill Jack, it is very important to get a sense of perspective on what strange going-ons were occurring at the time just prior to Jack. And it's worth noting that any references I make to Jack will be to Springhill Jack, and not the serial killer Jack the Ripper. Throughout the chequered history of London there have been many ghostly tales, some of which bore out the fact that it was a dangerous place on a very fundamental human level. One of these early stories would even get a legal precedent in UK law, that being the case of the Hammersmith Ghost. It was November 1803 when a number of local residents claimed to have sighted or had been attacked by a strange ghost. The gossipers within the community had postulated that the ghost was that of a man who had, the previous year, committed suicide and had been buried in Hammersmith Churchyard. This spectral entity was described as being tall in stature and dressed in all white, but other recollections of its appearance described it as also wearing a calfskin garment with horns and large glass eyes. 
The ghost had been seen by many people in the churchyard. One gentleman, a Thomas Groom, stated that close to 9 o'clock p.m. an unexplainable something rose from behind a tombstone and grabbed him by the throat. Thomas was accompanied by a friend who was walking ahead of him, heard the ensuing scuffle and turned around, at which the ghostly form gave me a twist round and I saw nothing. I gave a bit of a push out with my fist and felt something soft like a great coat. As it was not until 1829 that the first professional police force was organised in England, many people were very much frightened, according to a William Girdler, and several citizens had formed armed patrols in order to capture the ghost. It was 11 o'clock p.m. on the 3rd of January 1804, when a member of one of the armed vigilante groups encountered local bricklayer Thomas Millwood. The 29-year-old excise officer, Francis Smith, had set out that night with the intention of finding the ghost. Instead, he found Millwood, dressed in linen trousers, entirely white, washed very clean, a waistcoat of flannel, apparently new, very white, and an apron which he wore round him. Smith confronted Millwood, who was en route to his parents, and shouted, Damn you! Who are you? And what are you? Damn you, I'll shoot you! After which Smith fired his shotgun, hitting Millwood in the left of the lower jaw and killing him. Smith was later found guilty of the murder of Millwood and sentenced to death. The sentence was later commuted to one of a year's hard labour. There was a lot of publicity surrounding the trial and the culpability of Smith. The constant coverage encouraged the true perpetrator of the Hammersmith ghost to come forward. John Graham was an elderly shoemaker and had been pretending to be a ghost by using one of his own white sheets to frighten his apprentice, who had been scaring Graham's own children with ghost stories. There is, however, no record of John Graham ever being punished for his ghostly misdeeds. Are mistaken beliefs sufficient grounds for murder? This matter was debated for more than a hundred years until it was finally settled at the Court of Appeal in the case R. V. Williams, Gladstone, in 1984. The peoples of Victorian London would still describe many encounters with apparitions on the streets and in secluded dark alleyways. It is believed that tales like the Hammersmith Ghost and other violent visitations like the Southampton Spirit form the foundation of the Spring Hill Jack encounters. Early Encounters During this period, the term Spring Hill Jack will encompass all the strange sightings and encounters that have been bundled together and contribute to the whole mystery. 
In the last week of December 1837, the first recorded accounts of Jack's nefarious activities appeared in London newspapers. It is apparent that at this time, curiosity about the unknown attacker was pervasive, with a very large complex line of legends circulating in numerous places in the London area. The earliest of these encounters appeared to have occurred in early September 1837 in Barnes, then a village southwest of London. A ghost imp or demon in the ghostly appearance of a large white bull had attacked a number of individuals, notably ladies. It did not take long for similar stories to circulate, and over the next two months Jack was reported by many an individual to have taken on the visage of ghost bear and devil. These encounters were reported in a few villages that are situated to the south and west of the city. A carpenter called Jones reported being accosted by a man clothed in armour, with red shoes etc, in Cutthroat Lane, Isleworth. When he fought with this figure, two more ghosts came and gave assistance to Jack. Jones had been severely assaulted, his clothes had been shredded and discarded by the assailants. It is during these following encounters that we start to see some of the similarities between these and other sightings start to take shape. Jack was believed to have appeared late in December and early in January in St John's Wood, dressed as the aforementioned bear, and to the west of London as a devil. He was also seen sporting chainmail with iron claws, which he used to attack a blacksmith and several ladies. Jack is said to have climbed over the walls of Holland Park and Kensington Palace to dance on the lawns, and he was also said to have terrified residents of Stockwell, Brixton, Camberwell and Vauxhall. It has also been stated that some of the terrified residents had actually died as a result of the encounter. Although there are no firm records to either confirm nor deny this statement, there is the encounter of the daughter of Plutarch Dickinson of Dulwich. She was so terrified by the appearance of a ghost, which was described as enveloped in a white sheet and blue fire, that she was nearly deprived of her senses and was taken to bed in a very dangerous state, while a nine-year-old by the name of Timothy Marsh of Hammersmith was terribly frightened by the sight of Springhill Jack dressed as a bear. When these outlandish stories began to surface in print in the closing days of December 1837, the London newspapers were deriding. According to subsequent reports, the claims were little more than rumours and flights of fancy, the type of stuff that tended to be whispered around the serving classes. The papers had adopted the same rhetoric, for reasons best known to themselves, which was to end all inquiries into the matter, with the statement that all inquiries by both the police and local reporters had failed to find a single credible witness. Although if the newspapers and police had done their job, they could quite easily have traced these stories back to their original source and discovered that one or more of the encounters had very little to do with the myth that it had spawned. The allegation that Jack had danced on the lawn of Kensington Palace was an overblown retelling of an unrelated incident that occurred around 1822, 
and one of the alleged ghost encounters would reveal itself to actually be a police inspector on a white horse, and another encounter was, rather embarrassingly, a white-faced cow. Official Recognition Despite their differing stories and personal media biases, it was clear that something had caused this panic and the public unrest began to manifest. Several newspapers reported rumours that were circulating that alluded that the attacks were carried out by a group of noblemen as part of a wager. By the middle of January, a group of concerned individuals had organised a committee to examine the situation and gather sufficient funds to enable them to apprehend the enigmatic ghost. We don't know who told the committee, but the Spring Hill Jack gang was made of rascals connected with high families, and that bets to the amount of £5,000 are at stake upon the success or failure of the abominable proceedings. But the newspaper could scarcely give credence to the following report, which had reached their ears, that the object of the villains is to destroy the lives of no less than 30 human beings, viz. 8 old bachelors, 10 old maids, and 6 ladies' maids, and as many servant girls as they can, by depriving them of their reason and otherwise accelerating their deaths. Nonetheless, some members of the public believed something of this nature, one, a resident from Peckham, wrote to Sir John Cowan, Lord Mayor of London, saying, Some individuals of, as this writer believes, the higher ranks of life, have laid a wager with a mischievous and foolhardy companion, that he does not take upon himself the task of visiting many of the villages near London in three disguises, a ghost, a bear, and a devil, and, moreover, that he will not dare to enter gentlemen's gardens for the purpose of alarming the inmates of the house. The wager has, however, been accepted, and the unmanly villain has succeeded in depriving seven ladies of their senses. At one house he rang the bell, and on the servant coming to open the door, this worse-than-brute stood in no less dreadful figure than a spectre clad most perfectly." The consequence was that this poor girl immediately swooned and has never from that moment been in her senses, but on seeing any man screams out most violently, Take him away! There are two ladies which your lordship will regret to hear, who have husbands and children, and who are not expected to recover, but likely to become a burden on their families. Though the Lord Mayor was sceptical, a member of the audience confirmed that servant girls about Kensington, Hammersmith and Ealing tell dreadful stories of this ghost or devil. The facts were reported to the Times on the 9th of January, as well as other national papers on the 10th of January. It was on the 11th of the month that, in front of a crowded gathering, the Lord Mayor decided to show a pile of correspondences from various locations that each told of an encounter with the miscreants and their pranks. According to one writer, many young women in Hammersmith were scared into dangerous seizures and others were injured by a type of metallic claw that the scoundrel had on his hands. 
another writer stated that the Joker had been spotted regularly in Lewisham and Blackheath, as well as Stockwell, Brixton, Camberwell and Vauxhall, where some individuals died of fear and others also had fits. The Lord Mayor himself was split on the matter. He thought the greatest exaggerations had been made and that it was quite impossible that the ghost performs the feats of a devil upon earth. But on the other hand, someone he trusted had told him of a servant girl at Forest Hill who had been scared into fits by a figure in a bearskin. He was confident the person or persons involved were real and not phantoms. The police were told to look for the person responsible and incentives were given. The Allsop Incident Of all the tales and stories that surround the mystery of Spring Hill Jack, perhaps the most famous are the two cases of Jane Allsop and Lucy Scales. The claimed attacks on these two adolescent females have been well documented, although the Allsop investigation had received extensive coverage in the media, including an article in the Times. The attack on Scales received far fewer stories. On the evening of Tuesday, February the 20th, 1838, Jack came to Bearbinder Cottage, Bearbinder Lane, on the outskirts of Old Ford. We have caught Springhill Jack here in this lane! Was what Jane Allsop heard coming from the dark, caped figure that was knocking on the door. On that night, Jane answered the door of her father's house to a man purporting to be a police officer who urged her to bring a light. She gave the individual a candle. However, as soon as she handed him the light, he flung off his cloak and presented a most hideous and frightful appearance, spitting blue and white flame from his lips and his eyes resembled red balls of fire. Miss Allsop described him as wearing a big helmet and clothes that looked to be very tight-fitting and resembled white oilskin. He grabbed her and began ripping at her gown with his claws, which she was positive were of some metallic substance. She shouted for assistance, escaped from him and raced towards the house. He grabbed her on the steps and used his claws to rip her neck and arms. Her assailant escaped when she was rescued by one of her sisters, Mrs. Harrison. The following day, Jane went to report the incident to the local police office on Lambeth Street with her father and two sisters, where an investigative judge was sitting each day to hear the district's main offences. The first retelling of the tale was written in numerous London newspapers, such as The Times, on the 22nd of February, which is as follows. At about a quarter to nine o'clock, she heard a violent ringing at the gate of the front of the house, and on going to the door to see what was the matter, she saw a man standing outside, of whom she inquired what was the matter and requested he would not ring so loud. The person instantly replied that he was a policeman, and said, For God's sake, bring me a light, for we have caught Springhill Jack here in this lane. 
She returned into the house and brought a candle and handed it to the person who appeared enveloped in a long cloak and whom she at first really believed to be a policeman. The instant she had done so, however, he threw off his outer garment and applying the lighted candle to his breast presented a most hideous and frightful appearance and vomited forth a quantity of blue and white flames from his mouth and his eyes resembled red balls of fire. From the hasty glance which her fright enabled her to get of this person, she observed he wore a large helmet, and his dress, which appeared to fit him very tight, seemed to her to resemble white oilskin. Without uttering a sentence, he darted at her, and catching her partly by her dress and the back part of her neck, placed her head under one of his arms and commenced tearing her gown with his claws, which she was certain were made of some metallic substance. She screamed out as loud as she could for assistance, and by some considerable exertion got away from him and ran towards the house to get in. Her assailant, however, followed her and caught her on the steps leading to the half-door, when he again used considerable violence, tore her neck and arms with his claws, as well as a quantity of hair from her head. But she was at length rescued from his grasp by one of her sisters. Miss Alsop added that she had suffered considerably all night from the shock she had sustained, and was then in extreme pain, both from the injury done to her arm and the wounds and scratches inflicted by the miscreant about her shoulders and neck with his claws or hands. The declaration of Jane was backed by her sister's statements. The elder of the two said during the court that her sister's dress was nearly torn off her. Both her combs dragged out of her hair as well as a quantity of her hair torn away. It would be Jane's father that would add an interesting observation to the statement, and that was... Mr. Alsop also said it was perfectly clear that there were more than one ruffian connected with this outrage, as the fellow who committed this violence did not return for his cloak, but scampered across the fields, so that there must have been some person with him to pick it up. For a time, this was the extent of available reports for the old Ford attack. But as time has moved on, and we now have access to previously unseen police files and private investigations that were carried out at the time. The report from the police and private officers engaged in the Lambeth Street office surfaced in the news over the following several days after the initial incident. On the 2nd and 3rd of March, the Times published two extensive follow-ups to the original story. Two investigations of the Orsop attack appear to have taken place. The first was led by the recently created Metropolitan Police, separately from the second investigation led by James Lee, a former Bow Street Patrol member directly engaged by the Police Department of Lambeth Street to review matters before the court. Lee started work the same day that Jane delivered her testimony, and this fascinating report appeared the next morning. He stated that from what they had learned, he had no doubt that the person by whom the outrage had been committed had been in the neighbourhood for nearly a month past, frightening men as well as women, and had on one occasion narrowly escaped apprehension. A person answering precisely his size and figure had been frequently observed walking about the lanes and lonely places, enveloped in a large Spanish cloak, 
and was sometimes in the habit of carrying a small lantern about with him. On one occasion, he partially exhibited his masquerade in Beaufair Fields, and was closely pursued by a number of men in the employment of Mr. Giles, a coachmaster at Bow, but by the most extraordinary agility and apparently a thorough knowledge of the locality of the place, he got clear off. The officer added he was perfectly satisfied of the truth of the statement of Miss Alsop as to the violence inflicted upon her by the person she described. Indeed, the whole family, all of whom had seen him, agreed precisely in this description, but he differed in opinion with Mr. Alsop that there was more than one person concerned in this outrage. The situation of Mr. Alsop's house being at a considerable distance from any other, and in a very lonely spot, afforded ample opportunity for the ghost, as he was called, to play off his pranks with impunity. But besides this, it was quite evident that the family were not strangers to him, as he was well acquainted with the name of Mr. Alsop. After this outrage was committed, it appeared the family threw up the windows and called out loudly for the police and assistance, and their cries being heard at the John Bull public house some distance off. Three persons set out from thence in the direction of Mr. Allsop's, and on their way thither they met a tall person wrapped in a large cloak, who said as they came up that a policeman was wanted at Mr. Allsop's, and they took no further notice of him. This person, he felt convinced, was none other than the perpetrator of this outrage himself. Some days later, Mr Young, superintendent of K Division stationed in Stepney, revealed the early results of the police inquiry. Young and Lee then had a number of further witnesses examined. Their conclusion was that, in her fright, the young lady had much mistaken the appearance of her assailant and that the event was merely the result of a drunken frolic, and not the act of an individual who was stated to have made his appearance in different outlets of the metropolis in so many different shapes. On the 28th of February, in front of three magistrates and a big crowd, the police took their case to Lambeth Street. Two suspects had been interviewed, although none of them had been legally accused, a local bricklayer named Payne and a carpenter named Milbank and numerous witnesses in the Bearbinder Lane were asked to present evidence regarding the sightings and attacks. A coach wheelwright known as James Smith came forward with testimony that was to be extremely damaging. He stated that he was walking up Bearbinder Lane when he heard the sounds of screaming coming from the direction of Bearbinder Cottage. He was hurrying along when he stopped two gentlemen Payne and Milbank, strolling from the home. Milbank was dressed in a white cap and a white shooting jacket, which was assumed by Officer Lee to be the white oilskin outfit Jane Alsop had mentioned in her statement in the Times article. Smith also stated that he saw the two men again later that evening on Coburn Road and overheard the following very damning and telling conversation. Payne said to the other, it was rascally. I would not have had it done upon any account, or words to that effect. I was carrying my work upon my shoulder at the time, and they recognised me. And the man in the shooting jacket said, there's that who was in the lane. He then came up to me and caught hold of the wheel I was carrying, and pulled it off my shoulder, saying at the same time, what have you to say to Spring Hill Jack? 
I desired him to leave my wheel alone, and then pain came and took him away. I went into the Morgan's Arms public house, and they followed me in, and went into either the top room or the parlour. I inquired of the landlord who the man in the shooting jacket was, and he said that his name was Milbank, and that he resided nearly opposite to his house. I have no doubt that the man Milbank was the person who so frightened the Mrs. Allsop. When both Payne and Milbank were questioned, they absolutely refuted carrying out the attacks or even having the discussion with each other that Smith had claimed to have overheard. Despite these statements, Milbank did add that he was totally inebriated and that he had little recollection of what had happened that evening. Jane Alsop and her sisters were therefore summoned as a result and they said categorically that the man that attacked them was in no way inebriated. The whole story was now getting confusing, as the various contradicting testimony confounded and baffled the Lambeth Street magistrates. It was clear that Milbank, in particular, had a case to answer. So, as was customary, the Lambeth Street magistrates demanded a fresh investigation, which just ended up creating a more baffling mess than before. On the 2nd of March, we learned the conclusions of the fresh inquiry. A shoemaker, Richardson, who had gone to Bearbinder Lane also just before nine, had stated that he encountered not just Milbank and Payne, but also two other individuals, a boy and a young man in a large cloak, who, in rather a joking or laughing manner, said something about spring Jack being in the lane. What is particularly interesting about this statement is that at this time it was unknown to everybody except the Allsops and the police that her assailant had identified himself as Jack. One of the mysteries surrounding the Allsop case is the identity of the shrouded young man. It appears that Smith was more than convinced that this person was none other than Milbank, while Richardson was adamant that this was not the case. Further evidence given was provided by a gentleman from the Old Ford area who had proceeded to do his own investigation to allay, if possible, the terror that had spread across the neighbourhood. This only helped to complicate the matter further by identifying an individual named Fox who acknowledged to being in the lane with a child when Jane was assaulted but also claimed that he was not wearing a cloak at the time. It would come as no surprise that the results of these investigations would lead nowhere. Mr Hardwick, the Chief Magistrate, told Milbank that he now believed that the man they had as their chief suspect was indeed innocent, and at that he called for yet more investigations to be conducted. There appears to be no record of any other additional material being unearthed by Lee and Young, something the newspapers would surely print. And it is also worthy of note that nobody was ever prosecuted for attacking Jane Orsop on that terrible night. Springhill Jack would once again reappear in London's East End five days after Jane was attacked. This time he knocked on the door of 2 Turner Street, situated just off the commercial road. When a young servant boy answered the door, Jack flung down his coat and presented a most hideous appearance. The frightened child screamed so loudly that Jack left in a flurry without completing whatever malevolent mission he had in mind. The Scales Incident 
The next incident, although scant in details, does share a lot of similarities to the Orsop case. A Lucy Scales, 18, and her sister were going home from seeing their brother, a butcher, who resided in Limehouse on February the 28th, 1839, nine days after the attack on Miss Olsop. Miss Scales claimed in her police statement that she and her sister had been travelling down Green Dragon Alley when they noticed a person standing suspiciously at an angle in the passage. She was walking ahead of her sister at the time, and when she approached the mysterious gentleman who was clad in a voluminous cloak, he spurted a quantity of blue flame in her face, blinding her and causing her to fall to the ground. She was then convulsing from fits, which it is stated lasted for several hours. The event is said to have occurred at around 8.30pm. It is said that Springhill Jack did not even attempt to physically hurt the girls, but instead walked away as soon as the deed was done. Lucy was carried home, and a surgeon was sent in to see her. Her description of Jack is similar to Jane Allsop's. He was tall and slender, dressed gentlemanly, and wore a bonnet-like headdress and a big cloak. For whatever reason, the press paid little notice to this assault. It appears that Jane also reported the incident to the Lambeth magistrates, and little to no investigating was done. Although Officer Lee did visit the scene of the crime, it is stated that he said that no place could be better adopted for such an act, as persons could be seen at a considerable distance approaching it on both sides. One of the main reasons why this case was probably not chased up further was probably due to the lack of witnesses and therefore hampering any further probing. As the legend of Spring Hill Jack swept the capital, so too it seems did the imitators and copycat Springers. During the month of March, it was reported in the press that two tall men in black cloaks with faces smeared with ochre, had terrorised a boy in Westmoreland Mews. Another Jack wannabe for his accomplishments in the Kilburn region, clad in a mask with a bearded layer, James Painter, was fined £4. It was also reported that on either the 28th of February or the 1st of March, a genteelly dressed man had walked into the White Lion pub situated in Veer Street. This gentleman approached the bar and with a silken voice told the landlady that he was the mysterious spring-heeled Jack. At that instance he pulled out his self-protector. The so-called life preserver was a version of the club that a respectable man may carry, but not as frequently as a genuine cane. The mysterious gentleman aimed a vicious blow at the woman's head, which fortunately for her, missed its target. <coughs> In Islington, it is reported that a blacksmith by the name of James Priest was apprehended by the police after assaulting several women, and he was eventually sentenced to three months hard labour. At roughly the same time, a man draped in a flowing cloak grabbed a woman in Lincoln's Inn Fields and slapped her full on in the face. 
and perhaps more telling of the amount of press coverage that was given to the Jane Allsop case, a young adult by the name of Daniel Glanville was apprehended in Kentish Town, wearing a mask with blue paper adhered at the mouth to simulate the fiery breath of Spring Hill Jack. The boy was discharged with a caution this time. It seems that just as things were beginning to die down and the daily grind took precedent once again over people's lives, a woman was assaulted at South End on the clifftops by what she described as a gentleman who threw her to the ground and ripped violently at her clothes. The fiend also stuffed grass in her mouth. Even if only a cursory glance is given to this account, it is clearly seen that apart from the shredding of the woman's clothes, there is no real substantial evidence to link this case with the aforementioned incidents of Alsop and Scales. Despite this, the local newspaper still decided to label the fiend spring Heeled Jack. And despite facts pointing out that there was no connection between some of these incidents, they were all bundled together. For it appeared that there now was a new name for common perpetrators of physical abuse, and that was spring Hill Jack. The Peckham Ghost spring Hill Jack was first identified as the Peckham Ghost in 1872, when a mysterious figure was reported to have been seen in Peckham. South London. Jack was only linked to the case by metropolitan papers such as the News of the World and the Illustrated Police News, though these were, much like today's papers, only reporting the rumours that were rife at the time. The Peckham Ghost Tale began during the first week of October. There have been several tales of a white-clad person frightening the locals. As an example, consider the following. He appeared on the 14th of October 1872 to Sarah Ann Foster, a girl living opposite the Crystal Palace Tavern and charring at Mr Smith's in Lordship Lane. It appears that she had been to fetch the supper beer, and on her return she was required to go on another errand, when she complained to her mistress that there was a tall man waiting in the road. Mrs Smith remonstrated with her on the folly of being frightened, and Mr. Smith said he would watch her from the window. She started on her errand, but had not left the front garden when a figure in white rose from behind the fence. She screamed loudly and rushed towards the doorway and was clasped in the arms of her master. He, having seen the apparition from the window, and in rushing out caught his foot on something which threw him forward, and instead of catching the ghost, he caught the girl in his arms, who, thinking it was the unearthly spirit that had got hold of her, went into a fit, which she remained for two hours and is now seriously ill. The description given by Mr. Smith and the girl is as follows. About six foot high, dressed in long overcoat, having white lining, which, when thrown open, aided by a white waistcoat and outstretched arms, gave the desired effect a dark felt hat, and a plume of black feathers with which he hides his ignominious features. 
it appears that apart from the use of white clothing, the tale bears very little to the previous cases of Jack. On the 6th of November, another encounter was to occur. This particular event is one of those few cases that seem to allude to a slightly supernatural explanation of Jack. Until this point, it has always been assumed by the evidence that Jack was definitely a living, breathing man that had a taste for the theatrical. For example, dressing up as a bull, demon, ghost or devil. The following statement was made by G. H. R. Davison, who wrote to the editor of the Camberwell and Peckham Times, While returning from a friend's house in Brixton Hill last evening, via Hernhill, I was accosted by that fellow, the ghost. I had just arrived at the point in Hernhill Road, where the footpath runs from the side of St Paul's into Half Moon Lane, when the figure came forth from beside the stile. I confess I was momentarily frightened, but speedily recovering my presence of mind, was on the point of making an onslaught with my umbrella, when the object turned sharp round and cleared the low railings in a bound and made off across the country. Now being over forty, it was useless thinking of pursuit, but I, however, satisfied myself that he is clad in a black suit, which, by some means, he transposes into white when needful. He also has spring-heeled or Indian rubber-soled boots, for no man living could leap so lightly and, I might say, fly across the ground in a manner as he did so last night. Joseph Mundy was arrested on suspicion of being the Peckham ghost in November. Matilda Ayers, the chief witness against Mundy, said he spread his arms wide to reveal that his black cloak was lined with a white material and made a queer booing with his mouth. Mundy appeared before magistrates at Lambeth Police Court. Mundy's arrest appeared to satisfy local journalists that the ghost of Peckham was locked safely away, but while he was detained and ultimately asked to find assurance that he would do well for six months thereafter, new claims of ghostly apparitions remained for a time. Nonetheless, in the beginning of December 1872, Peckham's ghost fears seemed to have perished. Other Encounters In April and May 1873, it was reported that there were numerous sightings in Sheffield of the Park Ghost, which locals also came to identify as Springhill Jack. Similar stories were published in the Illustrated Police News. Some of the witnesses went to the press and stated that the ghost was tall, gaunt, and of an unearthly aspect, skimming over the ground with supernatural swiftness. In August 1877, there were further recorded sightings of the mysterious Jack. The report was as follows. A guard on duty at Aldershot Garrison's North Camp looked into the darkness, his attention drawn by a mysterious figure advancing towards him. The soldier issued a challenge, which remained unanswered, and the figure approached him and slapped him 
across the face many times. The guard shot at him with no visible effects. Some sources claim that he may have fired blanks, others that he missed or that he fired warning shots. The strange figure then disappeared into the surrounding darkness with astonishing bounds. On the 17th of March, 1877, the local military newspaper, Sheldrake's Aldershot and Sandhurst Military Gazette, reported the event. Someone or other appears to have made up his mind to play some rather questionable pranks with some of the sentries at this camp while on night duty. About a week ago, it appears, but we do not vouch for the correctness of this story, a sentry was on duty at the North Camp, and about midnight someone came towards him who refused to answer to the usual challenge of who comes there. And after dodging about the sentry box in a fantastic fashion for some little time, made off with astonishing swiftness, not however until the sentry had loaded his rifle and fired, but without any effect. Spring-heeled Jack, as he has been termed in camp, then paid a similar visit to the sentry on duty near the cemetery, who also fired, but alas, without hitting the object at which he aimed. What or who the individual who is thus amusing himself might be, we do not know, but such little bits of fun might be carried just too far. And enjoyment of this kind had better be discontinued before one of the nocturnal pranks leads to unpleasant results. The Aldershot appearances of Springhill Jack were referred to in Lord Ernest Hamilton's 1922 memoir, Forty Years On. However, although he incorrectly states that the events occurred in the winter of 1879, following his movement to Aldershot by his regiment, 60th Rifles, and that there were similar occurrences when the regiment was barracked in the winter of 1878 in Colchester. Hamilton added that panic became widespread throughout Aldershot, that sentries were issued ammunition and they were ordered to shoot the night terror on sight, following which the appearances ceased. Hamilton thought that the appearances were actually pranks, carried out by one of his officers, a Lieutenant Alfrey, but it was either thought that the offences were too minor or simply too trivial, as there is no record of there being a court-martial for Alfrey. Springhill Jack vanished at Aldershot in late April, but he reappeared in late July, according to the police news. He reprised some of his favourite pranks on this second visitation. His method of proceeding seems to be to approach unobserved some post, then climb the sentry box and pass his hand, which is arranged to feel as cold and clammy as that of a corpse over the face of the sentinel. The sentries had lately been ordered to fire on the ghost and were loaded with ball, but this precaution has lately been given up. Jack pursued his old tactics on the 31st of August, 1877. He managed to reach unseen the powder magazine in the North Camp. Here, having nearly frightened the sentry out of his wits by slapping his face with death-like hands, he appeared hopping and bounding into the mist. The police news were particularly surprised by the reappearance of Jack. As to their knowledge, The suspect in the first spate of incidents, 
was no longer at the barracks. Another similar sighting occurred in Lincolnshire. It was said that Jack was seen wearing a sheep's hide near Newport Arch. He was reportedly chased by a furious crowd. He was surrounded and he was shot by residents, but to no effect. As always, he took use of his leaping skills to lose the mob and to hide once again. Sightings of Jack had waned by the end of the 19th century, and the reported sightings were moving towards the northwest of England. In 1904, there were reports of appearances in nearby William Henry Street and Salisbury Street. The events in William Henry Street were reported thusly in 1967 by the Liverpool Daily Post. In September 1904, the Springing Terror made his last appearance, this time in William Henry Street, when hundreds of local folk watched in awe as the pathetic creature leapt up and down the length of the Everton Street. After more than ten minutes of leaps which would embarrass present-day Olympic high jumpers and pole vaulters too, he was seen to jump clean over the terraced houses from Stitt Street to Hague Street and then hop back across the slate roofs to Salisbury Street, after which he was never seen again. It was during this time that Jack seemed to be linked by the locals and press to local poltergeist activities that were happening for no other reason than that he was supposed to be a paranormal entity. Although within a newspaper article, a Mrs. Pierpoint stated that in her opinion, the actual Spring Hill Jack was a local man slightly off balance mentally. He had a form of religious mania and would climb on top of rooftops of houses, crying out, My wife is the devil! They usually fetched police or a fire engine ladder to get him down. As the police closed in on him, he would leap from one house roof to the next. That's what gave rise to the Spring Hill Jack rumours. Jack was one of the period's most popular figures. His claimed exploits have been published in newspapers and many penny dreadful plays at cheap theatres. In certain Punch and Judy plays, as Henry Mayhew has told, the devil was even dubbed spring Jack. spring Jack was described as the very image of the devil himself, with horns and eyes of flame, in a report from Northamptonshire. The legend was linked with the phenomenon of the devil's hoofprints, which appeared in Devon in February 1855, but more about that in a future episode. A Captain Finch was convicted of assault against women, during which he is said to have been disguised in a skin coat which had the appearance of Bullock's hide, skullcap, horns and mask, in Tainmouth, Devon. Many elements of Victorian life, particularly in London, were affected by Jack. His name was associated with the bogeyman in order to scare youngsters into good behaviour by informing them that if they were not good, he would spring up and peek in through their bedroom windows. Three pamphlet publications, ostensibly based on true occurrences, emerged virtually simultaneously in January and February 1838. They were not promoted as fiction, though they were most likely partially such. The only known copies were said to have perished when the British Library was bombed during World War II. 
During the second part of the 19th century, the figure was written into a variety of penny dreadful stories, first as a villain and subsequently in more heroic positions. In the early 1900s, he was being portrayed as a costumed selfless avenger of wrongs and protector of the innocent, essentially serving as a forerunner to pulp fiction and later comic book superheroes. Spring-Heeled Jack's narrative has led to a variety of origins and identity interpretations. Some academics look for legitimate reasons for the occurrences, while others examine the more spectacular elements of the narrative to suggest various forms of paranormal conjecture. Jack was not regarded as a supernatural being, but as a macabre sense of humour in one or more people. And these occurrences led to imitators who subsequently took the mantle. The tales were rejected as widespread hysteria by sceptical researchers who investigated spring Jack's occurrences. However, other experts believe that some individuals might be behind their origin. It has also been suggested that spring Jack is an alien entity of non-human appearance and superhuman agility, deriving from life in a higher gravity world with his skill in jumping and odd behaviour, and that he was a demon accidentally or purposefully summoned into this world by his own skill and strange behaviour. So what do you think? Was he a gentleman or a group of gentlemen out for a good laugh and took pleasure in terrifying women, or was he perhaps a strange paranormal entity? As ever, it is your choice, as this tale remains as yet unexplained. Links to our Facebook page and email address are in our bio, so feel free to get in touch, tell us how we are doing, and even suggest future episodes that we can cover. Thanks for listening. If you are listening to this message, then the subliminal frequency has successfully calibrated to your mind. Do not be alarmed. I am here to advise you to explore the Occultaria of Albion. The Occultaria of Albion is both a written series as well as a podcast. It explores various locations where paranormal and supernatural events have occurred. It is a broadcast on a forgotten frequency. Hauntings, Time slips, cryptids, cults, and more are investigated and examined. Enter a world designed by torch and moonlight. Go to occultariaofalbion.com or search Occultaria of Albion wherever you find your favourite podcasts.
and transmission.